Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Monday, which means it's only time for one thing, TF3. This week, making up the three, Dave O'Brien. Bonjour. Bonjour. No. And indeed, someone else who normally says no, but we managed to get him this week. Nico, welcome back. (laughs) I never say no. Hello, folks. How are you doing? Uh, Nico from uh, the the Weekly Rondo. I am from that. So thank you for the shout out. (laughs) Tidy, tidy Nico. Uh, We've got Nico on because... Well, uh, Adam's busy off in Northern Ireland trying to fix all sorts of things. And uh, Chris is away this week, so cannot be with us, but that's okay. Uh, let's get straight down to it then, guys. Massive game. Massive Super Sunday, as Richard Keyes kept saying to everyone. Um, and Dave, we'll start with the more important Manchester versus Liverpool tie, uh, which is Manchester United versus Liverpool. Your analysis of the game, just broadly, because people don't seem to be able to get a broad idea of this one. One one seems to confuse people. Mm, it does actually. People seem angry and lost, and I think it was a good result for United in the end. You know, they did obviously going that goal down a very silly, silly performance from Paul Pogba. Not just in terms of how he defended that corner, and how he did defend all those corners in the first half that were massively highlighted. In the second half, I thought he corrected that and did all, did all right in those situations. But in the first half, it was terrible. It's more about how he moved the ball. It was absolutely atrocious at it. Liverpool are playing a diamond in midfield. What you want to do to a diamond to expose it is you want to move it left to right. You want to expose those outside central midfielders and then open up that space in, inside. And they just United just didn't do that. And Paul Pogba was the guy that's supposed to be doing that. Paul Pogba's the guy that's supposed to be moving the ball quickly, that's switching the play, and he didn't do either of those things. Liverpool had a plan. As soon as Pogba got the ball, you saw three players just instantly go towards Paul sometimes Pogba. Sometimes four. Time time. Yeah, sometimes yeah. four. Sometimes the whole team were like, oh, Pogba's got it. Right, lads, it's counter-attacking time. And it was just poor because it didn't adjust that in the second half. And it was just the same thing over and over again. Pogba would get the ball, he'd slow it down. And by the time that it went to um, Anthony Martial or Wayne Rooney, Liverpool were in position and ready to go. What you wanted to do, you wanted to exp- you know, expose the young Liverpool right back who had a pretty decent game up against Anthony Martial. You just want to keep doing that and as quickly as you can. But also Antonio Valencia, what United's best attacking threat against Liverpool. Milner didn't have a clue how to deal with Antonio Valencia when they were one-on-one. Valencia kept on beating him, kept on getting the ball in the box. But... United didn't do that enough. Again, Paul Pogba, the guy that's switching the play, the guy that's played so many of those wonderful passes that have made the match of the day highlight reel time and time again. He just didn't do it. And it was just really, it was really odd. It was an odd performance from Paul Pogba. Um, and I'm just speaking to one of my mates um, who, who writes for Mundial, Football Mundial, and, and he's sort of come up with this crazy conspiracy theory where 
either for this hashtag to, to really go wild for the marketing fellas. If they got to, you know, you either you play well or you play poorly, and Paul Pogba played pretty poorly for it, so he's probably still going to be trending. But yeah, it was poor from United, and they didn't they didn't deal with Liverpool's diamond, and they could have exposed it, and they just didn't. And I thought that Liverpool were, were quite poor in the second half until Coutinho came on, and they started playing well again. But United, I feel like they deserve to win that game. The point was, was I mean, good. But... I mean, yeah, if you, if you deserve to win the game, then you win the game, don't you? Some people would say that Liverpool deserve to win the game when United visited Anfield and United played defensively mm. themselves. But I, yeah. I don't know how yeah. true that is in the end because actually, you know, both sides were actually pretty poor finishing. If you look at the reverse fixture for either side, they would have said, with better finishing, we would have, uh, we would have done better. Do you know what I mean? United really need to put their chances away and they didn't. No, no, again, they didn't do that. You know, McTierry and Paul Pogba. Paul Pogba as well, technically, on that left foot, he needs to work on that. It's, it's just not good enough. You know, his composure was shocking. He, he completely, he completely, you know, if you're on your left foot on that side, you expect him to maybe go near post or go on to the left, go for the left post. He went completely the other way and completely, and even at the target. You've got it's to do fair, better than that. It's fair to say, though. Well, credit uh, to Simon Mignolet. Mignolet was brilliant. Yeah, Mignolet, especially for that uh, Zlatan free kick. He read it very well. Um, and showed maybe some of his goalkeeping experience that he hasn't been doing more recently. Nico, it's also fair to say, though, that Liverpool were trying to exploit Manchester United's midfield. Maybe didn't do it well enough without one Senegalese uh, attacking midfielder in there. But they did manage to make some space around Michael Carrick and sort of suck him out of position, as a lot of the uh, pundits have been saying. Yeah, I thought in the first half, Liverpool really had to do what they wanted to do in terms of their press. They didn't necessarily press Michael Carrick too hard because they realised at least in my opinion, that if you pressed him and he beat it, you were split wide open. But Pogba, however, maybe it was something that they highlighted pre-match, which they said, hey, this guy loves his time on the ball, doesn't get pressed that hard by the teams that have they've been playing against recently. And they, they took full advantage of that. Like you said, three or four players surrounded him uh, quite consistently and were able to get the ball. I think uh, what you guys are saying is true in terms of United sort of deserve to win the game in a sense. I think if you look at the expected goals, um, if United had a little bit better finishing, they probably could have taken the three points. But I think it's a good result for them in the terms that, you know, they didn't have to play super defensively for the entire game in order to have uh, the the 1-1 draw result. And I think, you know, looking at going forward for Liverpool, like I said, and like you highlighted, Sadio Mane is a big miss. He's a catalyst for that press. And can Firmino fill that role as well as he does? I'm not exactly no, sure. No, but he can play it in a different way, can't he? Yeah, um, and from, you know, to be fair to Firmino, though, you know, he's one of those hot, cold players, uh, sort of blows one way or the other. The worry is he has the tendency to sort of uh, fade out of these games. The, the the strange thing is, Dave. I mean, um, and it, it's sort of becoming a more open secret now is Jose Mourinho's contempt for Jurgen Klopp. <laughs> what do you mean when uh, Klopp bottled it on the touchline because under Herrera committed one of the best technic- t- best tactical fouls I've seen in my life I, I stood up and applauded it how, do you, applauded how, did, he, how did Klopp bottle it, it? beautiful I mean, I mean the thing is Dave uh, it, it is it's, it's actually I suppose it's quite an open uh, thing now and we've spoken about it on the podcast Mourinho does not rate Klopp at all um, says that he thinks he's a bit of a fraud behind closed doors at least um, and no one really calls him on it Marine, you know you can see after the match Klopp wasn't particularly impressed by the way that Mourinho played and they both have little mild digs at the other one I, I don't think Klopp really wants to open anything up there because he realises the way the press are going to play it but it was clear that Mourinho doesn't particularly respect this Liverpool side even if they um, you know or at least Klopp's Liverpool side even if um, even if they they did manage to get a one all draw at Old Trafford and United didn't exploit them at all. I think they you know I think there was 
for me, it felt like Mourinho set United up in the right way, but the players didn't maybe push his game plan through enough. You know, when they were looking long and looking direct, United looked a lot better than they did in the first sort of half of the game. Um, and it was it was frustrating because United did cut Liverpool apart. They did cut them, you know, twice through the middle. United had played through balls and, you know, you got runners on that that didn't put those chances away. And it's kind of game plan versus style versus everything. It, it was a it was a good, good game in terms of the intensity. But maybe, the, the like we're saying, the quality of the finishing, the quality of chance creating, you know, maybe a, a Coutinho and Saido Mane missing from this Liverpool team kind of takes off two strong attacking parts of, of their game. But I think Mourinho... Did well in terms of his decisions. I thought he made the right calls again. Um, and again, 16 games unbeaten. Um, the best record in Europe's top five leagues. So you can't be, as a United fan, you can't be upset at the moment. You've got to be happy with what's going also, on and, and the progress. If I can also interject and say that, I think, uh, the, <laughs> I think the, 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 the result was largely down to the fact that Liverpool simply weren't very good in the second half. I mean, and I think that honestly comes down to, to Sadio Mane as well. I mean, a lot of what Liverpool do on the ball is that they shift defenses out of order with uh, with their off-ball runs and they create that space uh, by, you know, players running off the ball. And that, that just wasn't there this game. They didn't have enough players going forward to do so. And I think... You know, like you said, it's it's sort of style. And for someone, it's interesting for Mourinho to say that he doesn't respect Klopp because for someone that completely parked the bus the first time they played them this season and then not necessarily did the same, um, but still had, had, you know, an emphasis on defense in the, in the second tie, I think he respects their attack at least. Yeah, I think, he, I mean, I think he respects, uh, he, he has to play the team that's put in front of him essentially, doesn't it? You can't necessarily um you know you got just because he disrespects him doesn't mean he can't he's enough to set up a tactic he thinks is going to win um I, I mean we could also sort of say that uh Klopp is showing a little bit of his tactical adaptability here that he's you know I think Liverpool have had a couple of poor games in a row and uh, I think Liverpool will be happier with the result overall uh than Manchester United but it does leave Manchester United within touching distance of a the top four um and b Liverpool as well just uh, five points behind them now in the table uh Dave, there, there were a lot of um, little incidents. In this. It was quite a bitey game, wasn't it? But it wasn't a classic Manchester versus Liverpool tie. No, the intensity was lacking, actually. Apart from Ander Herrera, there was no one that was really uh, um, intense in the United team. There What's the deal with him? Why, 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 is Ander, why do you think Ander Herrera is unliked by, or disliked by so many people in the game? Because a lot of people do tend to get quite angry over him. He, does, he tends to push the line a little bit too far. Like, for instance, that tactical foul... It's, it seemed a little too much. Do you know what I mean? Too much? Why? It's, it's just, obviously, it's, um, it's a good way of phrasing the question, Lawrence. But I think Ander Herrera is a player that if you watch him and you consistently watch Manchester United, you can only be impressed. His work rate, his ability on the ball, his decision-making, it's, it's all massively improved on but the then why, did, why, did, why, did Dyer, why does Dyer dislike him? Why are there other players with dissenting comments about the way that Herrera <laughs> Sometimes, plays? Sometimes, Lawrence, you've got to take the, the, the law into your own hands. Um, and that's what Wayne Rooney did with that tackle on James Milner. A very, a very naughty tackle, but... A tackle of a Manchester Liverpool game with the right intensity, and I think that's what Rooney brought. But uh, you, you know, but, I mean, come on though, Dave. Okay, Dave, you can't but... seriously be advocating that someone. So, uh, so Wayne Rooney should have at least had a yellow card for that, and the referee well, he didn't. should have been booked. One hundred percent should have been booked. But it was a, a tackle to sort of you know against your opposite number to know that you're there. You know, I'm here. I'm. I've just come on the pitch. I'm you know ready to go. And sometimes you do need that in football. You do need the other side to it. You know, we'd all like to see you know pretty passing football, you know, pressing lines and so forth. Sometimes we need a bit of aggression. And I think yeah, it, Dave, it if, a play, if a player gets injured or a player, you know, if it, the point is that if it goes sort of against the spirit in which you're playing, then it does, 
it, it crosses a line. And I think you can you can sort of see that that kind of aggressive slash victim mentality starting to creep in at United because Herrera is the perfect aggressor and Rooney's the perfect victim. It's uh, it's perfect, Lawrence. It's we're, we're turning into the Antichrist Club, which is exactly what I wanted ever since Sir Alex Ferguson <laughs> left. Is it really though? Do you really want that? Why do you want that? Why not? I think I think there's a there's a certain image about that, and like Dave's spoken about a million times. He says he likes being hated and all this stuff about United. But I think in regards to that, he doesn't have any style, other option though, Nico. He can't, like United. United <laughs> are not going to be liked, so they have to embrace this identity. I think that's the problem is that there are. And I mean, Dave, as much as you don't like it, I think people swallow Klopp too much and they swallow Mourinho too easily. And neither there doesn't seem to be any analysis out there of the way that these managers are speaking or the way that the the, the, the tactics played out. Phil Neville just swallowed Mourinho's jizz as fast as he could last night on Match of the Day. <laughs> Bloody hell, Lawrence, this is a children's podcast. It's not, Dave. It's a children's podcast. <laughs> I mean, you get, what I'm, you get what I'm saying, though. I, mean, I get what you're you saying. Know. You know, I think there was definitely things that you could have looked at in an analytical perspective from yesterday's games, the clash reformations would have been fascinating. And you could have compared that to the Manchester City-Everton game in terms of what City set up with the 4-4-2 diamond, how Liverpool was successful with it. it. Yeah. Successful for it. You know what I mean? Like there's there's a lot of things that you could have looked at and you could have compared in terms of performance and uh, and so forth and the impact of Coutinho and how Liverpool were lacking an outlet when, his, um, when he wasn't on the pitch. You know, in that sort of first 20-odd minutes of that second half, Liverpool were atrocious. They couldn't get the ball to stick up front. And Firmino wasn't doing very well. Origi was quite poor. Lalana wasn't in the game and there is definitely stuff you can lock up but yeah it, it's that whole um you know managers bigger than what actually goes on the pitch and so forth but again they do are they are dictating to the players you know the certain approach but again yeah. Mourinho did, did well against Klopp and I think it's a fair reflection you know at two draws with these two sides this season I think that's fair to be quite honest that's what should have come out you know they should have come with a point you know two points each because it does seem quite defining doesn't it with yeah. the game there is something quite defining about it, but it, neither side particularly impressed in either game uh, in terms of entertainment, maybe. But both of them, you can sort of see where their managers are both going. Um, and I think both both sets of managers deserve praise on this one. Um, not least Mourinho for the way that he celebrated Zlatan's goals. Zlatan now on 14 goals, which leaves him six away from the mark of 20. Uh, Dave, he has uh, 17 games to get this uh, elusive 20, point, 20 goal mark. I mean, that's great. Adam's going to be blonde. Adam is going to be blonde, but I think the thing you've got to worry about is that there will be another gap. There, there's going to be another gap of games, and I just hope that it doesn't suck his confidence too much. Because I feel like, obviously, strikers do go through spells of scoring a hatful of goals in a row. Like Zlatan has scored 10 goals in his last 10 Premier League games, and he's got three assists. That, can't, that sort of um, performance only exists with Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo for a whole season. So there's going to be another spell where he stops scoring goals and it's going to get me a little bit nervous, especially in the trousers. I mean, Davey, uh, are you a little bit nervous that without Zlatan there is going to be maybe a lack of a focal point in the attack? No, I think it, it'll move, it moves to Marcus Rashford, which is a different opponent to play against, you know, Pacey Ford, even Anthony Martial, you know, he was quality when he played up front for Louis van Gaal's Man United. Um, yeah, but that's a very different team, isn't it? United. A very different team, but... Anthony, what was so impressive with Anthony Martial when he plays a centre forward was the ball stuck with him. Yeah, he is. It's quite. A, it's quite a big lad, but he's not um, muscular. He's not hench. He's not like you know you'd expect him to be as good at holding the ball up. But I was so so impressed when he was doing that and his understanding of where to move as well when he plays a striker to vacate the space. There was a great um, period of games where he would move outside and one matter would come into that 
you know, striking position and scored a few goals doing that. So I think United do have options without Zlatan Ibrahimovic. And again, it's going to be a challenge for those younger players to step up when he goes, you know, in, in the next two years or whenever he decides to pack it in. Mm. Okay. Uh, Dave, do you have to leave just yet or can we utilise you for a second more? Dave? Oh, five minutes and then I might have to run. All right, great. Um, okay, uh, then let's move on to the next game. Uh, Nico, your guys, and I mean your guys, uh, lost very conclusively mm. uh, against Manchester, sorry, against Everton this weekend. Uh, why? Why? I think uh, sort of several reasons. It's a combination of Everton finished extremely well. They didn't have that many shots on target and they finished pretty much all of them. Uh, there's also been a huge lack of a counter press at Manchester City for a few weeks now, and that's really coming back to bite us. Uh, and that's partially down to the fact that City are reliant on four 31 and over year olds in several key positions. We're talking about Gal Kalishi, uh, Bakari Sanya, Yaya Toure, and you know Alexander Kolarov and Pablo Zabaleta in different positions. You know, and you can't really rely on players that old this far into the season to be able to sort of execute the style that Pep Guardiola wants to play both on and off the ball. They're not quick enough. They're, they don't have the ability to execute that counter press. And what people talk about uh, so consistently is, is City's formation, how they choose to go forward. And I think Guardiola, at, at, at sort of his worst this season, is playing with four, four forwards, and it's usually five. So when you play with so many players forward, you have to have a backup plan. You have to have a defensive strategy. And when you have that many players so far up the field, counter pressing is the ideal. It's that... It's making sure that initial ball when the opposing team uh, gets possession back doesn't go directly up the field, and that just hasn't been happening. If you look at some of the Everton goals, Gareth Barry and some other players were allowed to launch the ball up, to, uh, up the field to a on-running Romelu Lukaku who's either one-on-one or in a favorable situation with the City defender, and I think that's essentially why you know uh, City had the result that they did. Yeah, I mean, Dave, uh, the point is also Everton got their result, um, and there are a lot, and I mean a lot of positives for them. Um, I, gu- I guess the worry for them is they won't play a team like this every week, will they? And the weird thing is, we normally say that about a, um, you know, a Burnley or a Hull. But we're saying this about <laughs> Man City. Yeah, it's a weird one. Um, like sort of Nick mentioned, I think it was the kind of fell into a- Everton's sort of hands in a way. Ronald Koeman is quite a direct manager and does like to play the, the long balls and. You know, it completely got away from what City were doing, outnumbering the central, you know, the central zone with four players in there. Um, they just completely bypassed that. Went straight to Lukaku, straight to Barkley, straight to Morales. You know, playing as a sort of three, um, three attackers in this system. And as well, you look at the diamond, and if you play through at the back against the diamond, you're usually going to lose. Um, that's another thing. That's one of those things that it just gives you, a, you know, two v. Uh, three v two at the back. You've got an extra man there. In terms of the flanks, your wing backs are out going to do the, the full backs that are playing in the four four two diamond because they've got more defensive responsibility. And it was just kind of the wrong strategy at the wrong time for Guardiola. One big thing as well, I feel that Guardiola and that's you know against um, Everton, they should have gone with De Bruyne at attacking midfield because it wasn't sticking. It kept, every time it went forward to Silva, Aguero, and Sterling, it kept on bouncing back. Everton were a little bit physical with them, and they win the ball and they go. And it was that thing that maybe thrown in Kevin De Bruyne there with his movement, with his you know ability to drift and pick up pockets of space and you know play those crosses, those low crosses that he plays every single week. That could have been a better solution than having someone like David Silva. David Silva works against a team that you can you can pick apart and you can dominate the ball. But Everton didn't allow City to do that. 
so they could have got they should have gone with Kevin De Bruyne's counter attacking ability. And again, it is frustrating seeing Kevin De Bruyne in central midfield because it's just not to his strengths at all. Even though he did play two of the passes of the game, you know, playing Sterling through, and I think he played Silver or Aguero through with a lovely like chipped, uh, clipped pass over the top. But it's just in the wrong position. You want him further up the pitch. You want him taking those shots. It's something that he hasn't done. Well, he hasn't scored since September, Kevin De Bruyne. You need Kevin De Bruyne to get those opportunities because he is so good from range. So, so good from range. Mm. I mean, Nico, where would you take this Man City team? Well, in, in what sense? I mean, which, which direction do you think they're going and which direction do you want them to go? Do you know what I mean? The issue, the issue like I said, is, is the fact that you know, a lot of people talked about how Guardiola took the easy job, and that's not necessarily true. We have a core of players that City have been dependent on for a number of years that aren't viable anymore. We're, lot, we're relying on Yaya Torre in midfield, who is obviously past his best, um, and even Guardiola has gotten him to do things that managers previous have never been able to do. Both Mancini at the end of his uh, at the end of his tenure at Manchester City and Pellegrini in his entire tenure in at Manchester City never got uh, Yaya Torre to perform defensively, and that's what he's doing now, and it's still not enough. So I think going forward, there was a period in time where we play, were playing with uh, fourth back. It was a more traditional 4-2-3-1, and it was very vertical. Um, players got forward and back very well, and I think per- possibly moving towards that as a as a sort of temporary solution. The issue is, is that Guardiola wants to persist with his philosophy, and I think that's good in a sense, but at the same time, we simply don't have the pieces to... Uh, perform that system well enough right now. If you look at the the players around us and the teams around us, they have the players to do that. If you look at Spurs, they're running a similar uh, three-back system with Danny Rose and Kyle Walker, probably two of the best components you can have in that system. If you look at Chelsea, Marcus Alonso and Victor Moses, very good in those systems. Well, we have Bakary Sanya and Gal Clichy, and in some cases Raheem Sterling and Leroy Sané. Those those players don't necessarily match up. Well, I mean, but I mean, you could also say the same. You could say the same originally when Conte went to Chelsea, couldn't you? That those players need some coaching. Um, and I, I, I guess I'm just a little bit of a loss because people underrated. Maybe uh, you know when when Marcus Alonso signed for Chelsea, people sort of said. Eh, why would you sign him? <laughs> and then uh, now people that have never watched, no, never watched him play football because he's been one of the best sort of left wing backs in Syria for a good, you know, before he moved to Chelsea for yeah, a good I mean, seasons. If you're yeah, a team. I, I understand what you're saying, Lawrence. But but you could, I mean, you, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of making the point that you could say the same about a lot of those players at Chelsea. You could say the same about um, Pedro. People sort of saying, oh, why did you sign him? He he was massively <laughs> overrated at Barcelona. Oh, why have you got Victor Moses? He's shit. Oh, Willian, he he works hard. Well, I think. <laughs> well, I think, you know, what what Conte did, which was brilliant, was he tried out the old Chelsea system and then he went with a completely different one. And I think what he did, which was brilliant, and credit to him, is that he built a system that he's played with before nonetheless, but he built a system with, with the players that he was given. He he built it, and, that, and also... To, to look at their three-back system is more reactive and it's more defensively based while Guardiola's is more dependent on possession. And those players are constantly staying forward. Their, their job is to uh, keep the width so that that opposition back line and those opposition uh, defending players are stretched and they stay wide. And having those players that far up the field is, is very dangerous, especially when your counter-press isn't as efficient as it should be. Interesting. Dave, do you think, and I sort of make this point in um, the Pochettino documentary, which went out on TFR more on Spurs in a little while because they were fantastic this weekend. Um, I think Jonathan Wilson makes the point, and it is a good point, and it, it kind of strikes me every time that we mention three at the back because uh, the whole point, you know, going back to Bielsa yet again, was that he would play almost two banks of three and then 
sort of floating players around that almost, so wing-backs, et cetera, et cetera, and then the forwards sort of having different roles. The point that Jonathan Wilson made was it's less about the formation or the shape and more about pressing in the right area and not being obsessed with the shape of the side always, which is maybe something we've become a little bit obsessed with in England. Do you think there's maybe a, a misleading culture of looking at the, that well, there were three people here instead of what those three are doing? Nah, yes and no. I think that's, you know, it's two different styles of analysis there. You know, you are looking at the shape, the team overall, but then obviously you're looking at the individual player roles because like Nick was saying, it's completely different. The three at the back that Chelsea are playing is massively different to the three at the back that Tottenham are playing. You know, the three at the back Chelsea are playing is more of a five. The Tottenham is very much a three because they have more of the ball, whereas Chelsea are happy to sit off. And I think it's it's a contrasting styles. And if it suits you, um, you know, if you're playing three at the back, it can suit you in two different ways. And that's why football is so brilliant and beautiful because, you know, Pochettino can play two sort of attacking midfielders off a striker and play quite narrow and press people very centrally. Whereas, you know, the the likes of Hazard and uh, Willian and Pedro usually stay a little bit wider. So it's quite interesting. And, to, and, and then they'll drop back into their shape. But I think it is, football is all about applying as much analysis as, as possible for, you know, from my personal opinion. So looking at it in a team level and a player level is good. And then obviously, you, you know, comparing what the other team's doing and how that's adapting and so forth. So it's a very fluid game and it's difficult to just say it's lines of players and say it's lines of this, lines of that, because it is interchangeable. You, you, for example, Spurs, you look at them, they, they interchange their positions so much. You know, you, uh, one of the great things was Dembele and Wiktanyama getting ahead of Ali and Eriksen at some times. That's um, what I'm saying. I mean, it, 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 you so know, it's, it's less about that sort of that they are a three. It's more about that those players are doing the right things at the right time. And I think sometimes we can be, maybe match of the day or maybe uh, one or two analysis programs lead us to believe that, you know, Three, zonal marking is terrible. Three at the back is, uh, you know, un, un, uh, untenable or it's very trendy at the moment. Yeah, it's fair. You know, yeah, they can keep on those lines. <laughs> I think you you make a good point in in the sense that, um, but I would also agree with Dave in this in the sense that it is less about you know the concrete formation and the shape and more about what those players are doing in those specific positions and that's something that Mauricio Pochettino himself in a press conference earlier this year talked about um, how it, it's it's not really about the pre-match uh, formation graphic it's about what those uh, it's more about the the what those players are doing and and the animation is how he put it and the physical intensity in which they do it in. and I think that's what you know we'll talk about Spurs later but that's what makes Spurs so great is that they're so fluid in their pressing and how they go forward that it makes them brilliant to to play against making out as if he's Walt Disney at this point it's how I animate them (laughs) Um, sure you're making Toy Story 4 great thanks uh, Mauricio Um, anyway uh, Dave it's been fantastic to have you on you now have to head off having uh, blown a hole in the blue part of Manchester and uh, blown the penis of the red half of Manchester it's great to have had you cheers mate thanks a lot again children's podcast Lawrence come on buddy uh, I mean, yeah, Dave says some <laughs> offensive words sometimes. Uh, Never. I'm, I'm clean, mate. Always clean, buddy. Always clean. That's not what you said off the podcast, you blue. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I, think if Dave, I think if Dave hangs up now, we might all get hung up on. Uh, so yeah. wait it's one over. second. It is over. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Dave there on the front three. Uh, Dave goes off to do a social club on Ball Street. Head over to Ball Street's channel and you can see Dave uh, chatting it up while sitting in a seat. Uh, one unusual format, some people say. Anyway, uh, Nico, let's get straight down to it. We're going to go to the white 5th, 8th, 10th of London, uh, where Spurs played West Brom. And it was a very conclusive match. Uh, West, it's been a few weeks now where Spurs have made the other side look as if they're just training. Yeah, I mean, they were brilliant. I think uh, this is something that was possibly a bogey result for, for Spurs. And a lot of people talked about, there was even a funny video on uh, TFR talking about how West Brom will get their customary win against Spurs at this point in the season, but that w- obviously was not the case. Spurs ran rampant, and I think this shows sort of the the um, the viability and verticality of their system in the sense that they were able to expose and utilize both wingbacks and Kyle Walker and Danny Rose uh, to the best of their abilities, as well as uh, Toby Alderweireld's passing range was accentuated in this match by his connection to Harry Kane and the other forwards, and I thought they absolutely tore West Brom apart. And West Brom didn't even play that poor they just didn't have the ability to cope with them both vertically and on the wings yeah absolutely and that, and that's part of it isn't it? and obviously that's sort of essentially uh the genesis of where uh pochettino has come from isn't it is that verticality the, the way that he wants his team to play it relies on those fullbacks to give them so much more but the point is that those fullbacks have taken on another role they're not just and it would be it would be so one-dimensional to say oh these guys just run up and down they defend quick and then they counter-attack they're beginning to slot inside they're beginning to take up other positions that sort of you it's it's almost as if um and, and i'm not saying he's sort of stolen what pep guardiola does because i think he's a variation but when his fullbacks slip inside and sort of become midfielders and become more attacking almost an emre chan style role then it completely confuses the other side and outnumbers them in areas and maybe gives uh, spurs an extra player that west brom just didn't know how to deal with yeah, I, I completely agree. And I also, I will, what I will say about this system is that people are sort of wondering why now rather than opposed to before, because Spurs had a sort of a slow start to the season. That's why they're not necessarily um, up there with the with the Liverpools and the Chelsea's of the world right now in terms of the title race, why are they just now switching back to this three system um, if it can garner such results? Because they have played it before. They played it before Conte uh, brought it to Chelsea and, and it brought some results. And I think the reason why is sort of Mauricio Pochettino was nervous um, and still is nervous to play the system because once you start playing a system, that's when people start figuring out how to play that system, right? Sure. And I think when you play uh, the four-two-three-one that Spurs are so commonly associated with, then um, you actually have better attacking use of the fullbacks because of their uh, overlapping ability and the, their ability to sort of have more space down the wing um, due to that traditional winger taking up their spot. Um, it, it, I think he's sort of keeping that in the back pocket as a as a game plan in case somebody really does figure Spurs out. But the thing is, and this is what I said about when they played against Chelsea, it's very difficult to beat that system because you have to match it and then you have to play better than them. So yeah, you have to find you have to explo- find a way to exploit it. And actually, it's quite a compact side who unfold very quickly. Right. 
and so really it, it's less about sort of directly exploiting the system and more about playing the it because i mean if you're if you're a manager who maybe you know doesn't have the time to dedicate or you know you have a four-day turnaround it's very difficult to sort of teach your players or instruct your players uh to to be able to counter that so essentially you, you almost get forced to play the odds and time after time uh west brom rolled the dice and lost with the odds didn't they very much so, very much so. And like I said, they didn't even play poorly. They just didn't have the ability because Spurs attacked them from a number of angles, wide, centrally, and, and over the top. Toby Alderweireld cannot be undervalued in terms of his passing ability. And I think that's one of the strengths of this uh, Spurs back three is the fact that they have such three set, you know, three very good passers in Toby Alderweireld, Eric Dyer, and Jan Vertonghen. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and you know what? Probably underrated as well as a side. Um, yeah, I think, uh, sorry to cut you off there, no, but you know, I, I speak to a lot of tactics guys uh, from different clubs, and, and I do. And um, you know, one one problem that they highlight is the overdependence on uh, someone like Moussa Dembele, because obviously in the four two three one system, he acts as that shuttler and he brings the the ball forward from defense to attack, and he does an excellent job of that. But in this three uh, sort of three four three or three five two system, he really doesn't have to do that anymore. And the over defense on one player is sort of nullified, and I think that's fantastic. It's incredible, really, the tactical diversity in the Premier League right now. Because for many seasons, we saw, you know, four five one, uh, four five one, four five one, four five one, and you know, you probably could if you if you wanted to uh, characterize some formations still like that. It would be a very reductionist way of looking at the. Um, formations you could you know you could say a four two three one is a four five one in some ways um but it's it's a really great variation on that and it means that managers now week after week are having to change and make small adaptations for instance i don't think we'll see pochettino play this uh during spurs next game yeah i think what what you said about the tactical diversity in the premier league is so true. I mean, I, I, a lot of people think it's unpopular to say because it's unpopular to hate Leicester's title season, uh, you know, win last year. And, and I, by any means, I don't. But I think the, the lack of tactical, tactical diversity in the Premier League was what made it so easy for them to or not easy, but uh, the, the prime conditions for them to win a title in the sense that you see Guardiola, Conte, Klopp, Mourinho, you know, Pochettino, all these managers switching it up in various ways tactically and it's so much more diverse than it was in years previous and I think that only speaks to the level of manager that we have in the Premier League now. So Nico what do you expect when and I was referencing the game next weekend for a very specific reason because Spurs end up playing Man City. Um, now obviously Man City had a really poor result this weekend Spurs actually have the exact opposite. Um, yeah. What do you expect when we see uh, Pochettino come up against um you know, one of the most res- well-respected managers in the league um, and certainly one who's got a job on his hands. I think, honestly, if things go the same way that they did in the first leg, which there's every, every you, know, you know, inkling to believe that, that it will uh, because of the way Guardiola has struggled. Like I said, there's personnel issues. We have to defend on people that we shouldn't be depending on um, as well as the fact that Spurs are really hot right now. I think... Either Spurs take it, but there is a, a small part of me that wants to believe that Guardiola will will pull something out of the hat, have something up his sleeve uh, that will uh, bring us some success. I think if who's we that going to rely on? Though I mean, yeah, I think if we play Raheem Sterling and, and Leroy Sané at wing back and they do their job uh, as well as they did against Chelsea, which a lot of people will hark, hark, 
harken back to the Chelsea result as one that was uh, horrible. And I think you play that game over 100 times and you get a different different result every time. It's not necessarily set in stone that Chelsea were so much better than us. Kevin De Bruyne doesn't hit the post. It's 2-0. It's a completely different game. So I think if we can sort of re-emulate that, that system and that result, because Tottenham are very similar, then we have every chance to win. Do you think the worry is now uh, that you guys don't have a, a, strength, a, a strength in the base of your midfield, whereas actually Spurs do? And the, the thing is that you know, if Spurs look to exploit that, you know, a lack of a player who's just sitting, and arguably, you know, that was uh, Yaya Toure maybe in the previous game, who, you know, we saw was exploited in all the tactical analysis uh, when Stones decided to wander into midfield and then Yaya stepped back. You know, do you worry about that? Essentially, as uh, Pochettino will definitely try to exploit that with the likes of Deli Ali, Christian Eriksen. Yeah, I think one thing that we are better at. Um... And, and, you know, like you said, there there is that worry that Yaya Torre will be exploited. And that's certainly a possibility. But one thing that Yaya Torre and John Stones uh, in tandem add to City, which they are better at than they were when they faced Spurs the first time, is playing out of the back. And what is so essential to that, and I highlighted that in my video analysis earlier this week, um, is that playing out of the back does provide a outlet when you're being pressed so hard. And I think that it worked against Liverpool Spurs are a little bit more aggressive in their press. So if we can beat that, there is a possibility for space in the final third. Yeah, very good point. Um, do, you, do you feel happy with the way that John Stones is going at the moment? Do you agree with the analysis from the press in England that John Stones is either not progressing fast enough or uh, is progressing in the wrong direction for some people? No, I don't at all. I think John Stones is a very good player. I think he's the key to sometimes uh, breaking down uh, more heavily guarded opponents and I think he's doing just fine he doesn't necessarily have the pieces around him to excel uh like I've spoken about before the wingbacks uh in Gail Clichy and Bakary Sanya don't necessarily offer the uh best outlets and the central defenders surrounding him aren't necessarily the uh the best players to have in that system and I think as we move forward and perhaps we get better uh, players surrounding him. And I wrote an article a, a long, long time ago sort of about how I think John Sons will never be a success with England because of the type of defender that he is. He's an on-ball defender. He looks for that sort of uh, positional spacing and those players to pass to. And he has an, an affinity for possession. And England have never and probably will never be that team. And I think that's sort of highlighted why people don't think he's progressing as fast or he's not as good. is because you put John Stones in Barcelona right now, maybe people say he's the best defender in the world because he does fit into that system and he does fit into the Guardiola system. It's just that right now it's not exactly clicking. I think when it does, we'll see the media perception of him change and (laughs) you can't really, you know, go back and forth. He's still the same player. It's just, just how it is. Nico, I'd love to agree with you, but Americans cannot come to our country and tell us how to play our game. Right. (laughs) Um, let, let's let's move on to another back three uh, this weekend. Another successful back three, at least uh, Chelsea, doing pretty well against the champions at the moment. Three uh, nil in the end, despite yet Diego Costa having to drop out. Conte saying it was um, a, a, an injury slash training issue. Uh, members of the press clearly leaking from the Costa camp that he's not particularly happy in London. Whether that means he's not happy at Chelsea is a whole other thing. But it's very clear there's some sort of unrest there. Um, but Chelsea still managing to get a great result. Uh, Marcus Alonso stepping away with two, Pedro stepping away with one, and people very happy with the versatility of the front line, Nico, which was uh, Pedro Azard playing as a false nine-ish sort of player, but not your classic dropping deep always into the classic false nine position, dropping even deeper than that at times, and then Willian as well. Yeah, I think uh, one thing that I said, and I was a little... Uh 
chastised on Twitter for is that I think if Diego Costa were to go to China or some other club because he's obviously unhappy in some sense, that it wouldn't be that that big of a loss. Um, it would obviously be a big loss because he's finishing at an unsustainable rate and he's, he is a good striker. Mm. But the fact of the matter is that the system is what's bringing Ch- uh, Chelsea results right now. And that's what makes them such a great team is that they're, it's almost interchangeable. And they didn't have the Costa either due to suspension or injury earlier this season. They did have to play that th- front three of Aiden Hazard, Pedro, and Willian. And they did just fine. And I think that's because they're so good off the ball and making space off the ball as well as they're aided by the fact that Marcus Alonso who obviously enjoyed some attacking success this season and Victor Moses are able to exploit that space on the wings as uh, the versatile wing backs that they are um, you know they, they it's, a, it's a system that's bringing results and it doesn't necessarily need Diego Costa Would you think the worry is that for a team like uh, Chelsea Diego Costa is sort of able to scrap them goals so if they do come up a side against a side who sits deep or maybe as you know like, like happened against Stoke you know they needed a, someone like Costa to unlock or demoralise that other side in order to get through and make the system work Yeah and I recently watched your guys vlog with Dave um, speaking about different tactics and I think you, I'm not suggesting that you can't necessarily you can necessarily go with the front three that they uh, went good. with <laughs> uh, they went with this uh, this past game you sometimes you need a target man you have to have that player that has the physical ability to withstand um, deep pressure uh, in deep opposition zones and Diego Costa is a perfect player for that but just because you know he does that well doesn't mean someone like Michi Batshuayi can't do the same role or someone that or Fernando Llorente someone that they've been linked with uh, can't do the same job yeah very good point um it's Fernando Llorente going there would be great um (laughs) however Leicester he's a beautiful he's a beautiful beautiful Spaniard he is he really is he, like he's, I would have wanted to see him in the Premier League a few years ago. I was disappointed when he he went to Juventus. I know. I wish he was in his prime, and he wasted a lot of time at Juventus because he didn't get that much play time. Yeah. And I think he actually suits uh, the Premier League very well. And him being at Swansea doesn't do him any favors. But he is uh, as someone that's supported La Roja for quite a while. He's a he's a beautiful Spaniard. Yeah, uh, the, and that that's a perfectly normal thing to say in the modern game. Um, I think it is. Yeah. It actually is, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, Leicester see themselves sitting just five points above the bottom. Uh, we, we'll see if they drop into that uh, mix come the end of the season. It really would be incredible to see that. Uh, let's go to someone else who won by a sizable margin. Another 4-0 this weekend, Nico, against someone who was in the bottom uh, I think actually Swansea now do sit bottom of the table after this result. Uh, Swansea at home getting the nil. Uh, Arsenal away from home getting the four. And such a contrast of fortunes for both this, both the sides in this game. Yeah, and like I've highlighted on my podcast and and perhaps others is is the lack of analysis with Arsenal. And this result sort of not necessarily proves me right, but talks about how good Arsenal as a team are when their tactics are correct, when they do get it right, when Arsene Wenger's system does work uh, to its best, which it obviously has, then we see a completely different perception. And perhaps the neg- negativity surrounding Arsenal doesn't do it any favors. They don't enjoy this 4-0 win as much as they should. Um, but that doesn't mean that you know they're lacking in backbone and just they, they won because uh, you know just because Swansea are, haven't been the best team in the Premier Premier League this season I think um, you know they were excellent and they can be excellent in, in a variety of, uh, of of systems it's frustrating though isn't it I mean obviously for Swansea to see themselves score two own goals uh, will have been frustrating but that does come from Arsenal pressure Arsenal obviously allowed to play the football they wanted to play and we saw Alexis Sanchez and Giroud both get their goals and both uh, then uh, have the substitute flip uh, Meza Ozil getting the same um, 
Sanchez reacted in, in, an, in, in an unusual way to his substitution, didn't he? Some people reading it that he's frustrated with his own performances and not being uh, able to play uh, as much or as well as he wants to at times. Other people saying it's because he's not necessarily happy in the big London lights. Yeah, I think, it, honestly, that's crap. And I don't know how much you read into it, but um, I, don't, I'm, yeah. I, I, I speak um, not consistently, but sometimes to Aaron Gordon, who's the vice sports editor. Um, and he's an Arsenal fan, and he had a tweet out that said, you know, it had the picture of Alexis Sanchez with his head down, with his coat over his head. Um, and that's what sort of people were blowing up. And I don't think that's the case. He just has his player down, but be- or his head down. But because it's Arsenal, people are blowing it up, making it to something that's way bigger than it should be. And I don't think it is that. I don't think he's unhappy. I think he's always going to be one of those players that wants to play. Uh, he's like Ronaldo. Ronaldo, they, sometimes they have to force Ronaldo to sit on the bench. And it's one of those players that will play until their legs break. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean he's unhappy at the club. He's just in, in, he loves football so much, and that's great. He's he in is, love yeah. with that. Yeah, he is unhappy at the club, but he's not unhappy at the club, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, there are different definitions of that. And I guess that's the best thing is the amb- ambiguity will get you RTs. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, Arsenal obviously dr- driving their way up the table, should we say, at this point, just one point behind Tottenham. Uh, and I think two points now, sorry, three points behind Liverpool, uh, who find themselves just five points off Chelsea. Uh, James Milner, of course, helping them there, because if James Milner scores in a game, well, they, yeah, he's got that record, hasn't he? Uh, scored that penalty, <laughs> and he's never lost when he scored in a Premier League match. He scored, four, I think he scored 49, or something, something ridiculous like that. Anyway. Um, well, he can't have scored 49 goals, can he? Who? James Milner. Yeah. I mean, considering Sorry. he's been around for that amount of time, I mean, maybe, yeah. If you've, got, if you've got 10 seasons, you score four goals a season and you've got penalties, you must have scored a lot of goals, right? Um, I mean, he played he played a striker role a couple times at Man City, so. That's a really good point, actually. He, he did. I remember that now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was God. a weird day. It was a weird day. It was, it was a weird, I think it wasn't just one day, though, was it? Yeah, like you said, it was a couple of it times. It was a weird period of time because yeah. we had, like, four strikers, Njeko, Stevan Jovetic, uh, Sergio Aguero, and... Kalechi and Nacho was just coming through at the time, I believe. And we they were all injured. So that's why Milner played in the striker role. Well, maybe it's a good time to step away uh, from England and go a bit more towards Europe, where Jovetic did get the winning goal against Real Madrid, breaking that 40-game run for Zidane and his men. Uh, Dave's analysis of this pre-match was that, you know what, that Real Madrid could lose this one. And ultimately, they did, Nico. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's something that Zidane's enjoyed some, somewhat of an odd tenure in terms of uh, tactical analysis at his time at Real Madrid. Um, I speak to someone quite consistently that analyzes Real Madrid for SB Nation uh, every single week. He's a very smart guy. His name's Alm Arn, Arnvid. And he, uh, at the beginning, he wasn't necessarily happy with the Zidane, not necessarily appointment, but his tactics. They were very rudimentary. It was 4-3-3 through three all the way, um, consistently relying on Ronaldo, Benzema, and Bale to be excellent, and they were. And that's why they went on this long run, or some portion of this long run. And then somewhere along the way, Zidane got his bearings, decided to try a diff- few different things, and he actually became somewhat tactically uh, uh, aware of things. And I think mm, perhaps maybe he overthought the Sevilla tie a little bit, and that's why he went with the three at the back when he could have just gone with 4-3-3. through three which accentuates the best parts of their system. Yeah, I think Dave was saying that as well. They, they didn't switch it up fast enough, essentially. Um, that ultimately led to uh, Real Madrid losing 2-1 away to Sevilla. Not the, not the worst and if thing. I can, yeah, sorry. go ahead. And if I can say, I think there is shades of Carlo Ancelotti um, in the sense that the post 
Decima. Um, they did go on an, uh, a quite lengthy unbeaten run, but it was in sort of the wrong end of the season. I think um, as someone that's been a part of serious sports teams, um, it's important to hit your stride in a part of the season that benefits you the most. Yeah, and Real Madrid have not hit their stride in the in the best part of the season. And this may be the wrong time. If they had hit the stride, 40 games unbeaten, obviously, in, in, in latter stages, then it would have been uh, much better. But for them to be ending that run now, it's a little bit worrying. And, and I think it's it'll be interesting to see how the politics of the club handles Zidane versus any other manager because obviously he's held in such a high regard mm. um, at the club, so... Yeah, you sort of see yourself um, yeah, worrying a little bit that if, if the wheels fall off, then it can go the complete opposite way. Um, but you'd hope that a 40-game run would earn you at least some respect. Uh, oh, it does. Club. Yeah. It doesn't at all. Yeah, yeah exactly. It. That's why I said hope and didn't mean it. Um, anyway, Sevilla find themselves in second. Uh, they, they've really pegged Real Madrid back there. Barcelona just two points uh, behind Real Madrid. Uh, Real Madrid one point ahead of Sevilla at the top. However, Real Madrid have a game in hand. You know, I wouldn't put it beyond Atletico Madrid either, but they've not had a great season so far. They find themselves in fourth place in that league. If we move across to Italy, which I just love to, the food's great. Fiorentina uh, got their win against the side who sit top, uh, Juventus. So we're now on 45, again, pegging Juventus back uh, to just one point ahead of Roma and four ahead of Napoli. Uh, in this one, it was it was fascinating because obviously we saw Kal- Kalinic uh, and uh, Iguain scoring um, for either side, two strikers who brought in to make the difference for their their sides. Nico, um, the, the thing and the frustrating thing was, I think, um, that we saw a three at the back system lose. Um, really frustrating, Nico, when three at the back loses because it means that everyone's wrong. <laughs> of course, of course, it does. It means that you're you're an idiot and everything you do is wrong and, and the system doesn't work and yeah. it's archaic and old and you should throw it out. Yeah, I guess the, the, the good thing is Fiorentina also played three at the back so we also still <laughs> three at the back win. Um, Lazio won against Atalanta uh, and of course that takes them up into fourth place. Only five points off Juve. This one's going to be a tight one come the end of the season. Um, disappointing, sorry, sorry. Disappointing uh, with, with Lazio though. I was speaking to someone earlier this week on Twitter about um, their manager's homophobic comments. And that's just not something that we want to see in the game. I uh, just thought I should highlight that and, you know, want to have tolerance for everybody. So. Yeah, no, so it's a really good point. And actually, uh, it's still something that seems fairly rife in um, in Italian Especially football. in Italy. And, and, and just coming from somewhere, my mother and I, my mother and I lived in, uh, in the northern part of Spain um, for a year or two of my life in Hijong. Um, which is uh, part of Asturias in the northern part of Spain. And, you know, racism and, and sort of that general feeling is very, is still very prominent in that yeah. part of the world, which is yeah. unfortunate. But. It seems tolerated as well, which is unusual. Um, yeah, if, if you were to make any of those comments in the Premier League, you just wouldn't get away with it now. Um, or would you? No. Uh, what, was it, what was that Burnley strike? I mean, I don't think, no, as a manager, no. But I, I think as a fan, it's something that we still see, which is really unfortunate. There was an incident with those Chelsea fans a year ago, um, or two years ago. Not with very the, good point, the, yeah. The yeah. So. yeah I, although I think those fans obviously aren't paid to be part of a club and aren't in an official, no, no, an official no, no. capacity. And I think a lot of them were prosecuted as well. At least two of them were prosecuted. I think, um, yeah, most of them were, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Monaco at top of League uh, winning. They're on fire this season. They are on Six fire. Goals. There's something very satisfying as well. Uh, Falcao is a player who seems highlighted quite a lot just because of the English press. But I'm equally oh. impressed by uh, Bernardo Silva over there. Yeah, 
yeah, he's been excellent. A lot of players at, at Monaco this season have been excellent. Uh, Fabinho as well. So they're an exciting team to look forward to in the Champions League, and they possibly could fill that dark horse dark horse role. Yeah, they certainly have. They're satisfying. That's what I like. Um, and that's maybe the more exciting side of it is that they're top of that league uh, only on goal difference. That I'll have you know because Nice themselves obviously um, well, filling the second spot, uh, having lost this weekend. Though Nice could have been top. Um, uh, sorry, having drew, drawn this weekend, as good as lost in that sense um, against against Mets, uh, and they they could have been top, but they ain't. PSG sitting in third place in that league, uh, just three points off the top though. Uh, that is, of course, going to finish beautifully this season. I can't wait to see someone else but PSG win that league or PSG come from behind and essentially ruin everyone else's party. Um, we'll see. But back to the Premier League. Yes, back to Blighty, friends. As uh, we... Where should we kind of... Yeah, you know what? Let's go to Hull, Nico. This one's a fascinating one because Bournemouth uh, taking the lead early. People putting their heads in their hands and saying, well, if Stanislas, Stanislas can score in the third minute we know which way this game's going to go. Um, but then afterwards, Eddie Howe was forced to admit, and, you know, I, yeah, I like Eddie Howe, I think he's a great manager, um, that he doesn't quite know how to stop conceding so many goals and feels like he's a little bit ridiculous at this point. Um, but Abel Hernandez getting two. Yeah, I mean, uh, Marco Silva's introduction to the Premier League couldn't have gone better. Um, and Eddie Howe's a fantastic manager to sort of uh, start, you know, baptism of fire, I guess, because he is he is an excellent manager. I think um, he is very likable because, at least to the modern era of analysis, because he is very honest. He like like you said, he doesn't know how to stop conceding goals, and I think it's quite frank, you know, isn't possibly- it? It was a very frank post match interview where he sort of said it's a new challenge in his managerial career that he hasn't really had the chance to address yet. I'm sorry, who said that, Marcus Silver? Or uh, no, sorry, uh, sorry, uh, Eddie Howe. Yeah, and, and I think that's, that's it's, very, it's awesome that he's, uh, he's so frank with the way he interviews, and I think that we need a little bit more of that. But obviously, Paul Merson eating his words uh, right out of the gate. <laughs> Not the only thing Paul Merson's eating right now. <laughs> the, the bigger challenge will be when Chelsea obviously take on Hull next week. <laughs> that should be interesting. You know, you say it's a baptism of fire against Bournemouth. Uh, his next two games are Chelsea and then Manchester United. Um, wow. And then they play Fulham. Yeah. So that's not so bad. But then they play Manchester United again, Liverpool, Arsenal. Um, it's just going to be, I mean, you'd hope that if any manager can do it, it'd be Marcus. Um, but we'll find out. Uh, Bournemouth, I mean, they find themselves still sitting in 11th place on 25 points, nine points clear of the relegation zone. So it's not going to be all that terrible. 15 points, you'd imagine, from this point will keep them up this season. And for that, Eddie Howe no, side... I think they'll be a, a, a mid-table team, mid-table finish. Eddie Howe is uh, is brilliant. And despite, the, despite probably the drop in form over the past few games, I think he has the tactical analysis and the ability to, to keep that team uh, mid-table or at least... Out of the bottom three, for sure. Yeah, I think he uh, he said he was a little bit um, disappointed with Jordan Ibe in recent weeks, uh, and what is what his effect has been on to the uh, been on the club more recently. Um, you'd imagine that Jordan Ibe would also be disappointed with the way that he's performed since he's gone there because he was so promising at Liverpool. Um, and maybe you know this is part of it is uh, as we move on to the West Ham game, talking about how players who are sort of effective in very specific uh, systems, if you like, Nico. You know, I think that they need to play more towards Jordan Ibe's strengths if they want to get the best out of him. But then that might take away from other players in the side. 
But I don't necessarily think, uh, you know, Eddie Howe's that type of manager. I don't think he's the type of guy to sort of make his system revolve around one player. And I think that's a good thing. I don't think you need to pander towards Jordan Ibe. I think Jordan Ibe needs to pander towards Bournemouth. I would like to see him develop as a player more. And he was very promising at Liverpool. But he's gonna if he's going to advance as a player, he needs to do better um, as being a holistic member of a team. Completely agree. Uh, but miss you, Jordan. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you like Jordan Ibe? Uh, you know, I like him as a player. I, I liked... I liked how fresh-faced he was. I like, uh, you know, as a Liverpool fan, I think what I liked was he was a, he was a Liverpool player, a Liverpool fan playing for a Liverpool team. Yeah, um, and you know, I was excited to see what would happen under Klopp, and there was almost this air of inevitability about what was going to happen. So you kind of wanted to see him do well to at least, um, you know, go in fulfill his what you what we wanted his potential to be. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, as patronising as that sounds, I still think he's a very intelligent <laughs> young player, and he's probably at the best place right now. Um, Liverpool's still got their buyback option. Don't forget it, Jürgen. Um, anyway, let, let's go to West Ham. A phrase not often said in London anymore. Uh, but it's it was 3-0 to them in the end uh, against Crystal Palace. Interesting, really, isn't it? Because actually we expected the opposite from this game, Nico. Uh, you know, the, the club thrown into disrepute this week by the, the, the revelations coming from Payet. Um, and, you know, Bilic sort of making very unusual comments about him have you seen the quotes that Billich had sort of, or Harry, Harry uh, Redknapp made a few years ago about Billich? When yeah, Billich I, I thought those were really funny. And you, you said um, people were expecting, obviously, the opposite. There's this result because of everything that's going on with West Ham. But I'm actually going to take this opportunity to, um, while Dave's not here, talk shit about him behind his back. No, I'm kidding. Um, but I will say that I think it's... The moment we've all been waiting for. <laughs> I, I find it so... It, it bothers me so much when... Obviously, things were going all peachy keen last year at West Ham, and everybody uh, loved Slavin Bilic and said he was you know, a great man-manager. He really put his arm around the player, Reese Oxford, um, Mikhail Antonio, Dimitri Payet, players like that, really benefiting from his managerial style. And then when things, when results are going the opposite direction, he's too close to the players, and he's, uh, he's, he's not good enough, and, and his man-manager style possibly working against him. And I don't think that's true. I think that's just something we say when results aren't going the right way. And I think... This result proves, and there have been results earlier this season that have proved that West Ham are still a good team. I think there's some bad eggs in that system. I think, um, although people have spoken about how good Dimitri Payet is, he's a very selfish, selfish player. A lot of the time, uh, West Ham uh, look to look to him for for central chance creation, and he does do well in that aspect. He's one of the top creators in Europe, but he does get time uh, and opportunity to create those opportunities but I think he carries a little more weight than he should he doesn't contribute defensively and he's sort of a selfish player and I think the sooner West Ham get him out and get his money as much money for him as they can um Slavin Bilic can build a better team a more holistic yeah. team. I agree I felt exactly the same and I, I felt that they should have got rid of him in the summer and would have been better to get rid of him in the summer yeah because you could have Sorry, uh, it would have had a better narrative, probably better relationship with the fans, and would have been better for everybody. I mean, principal rule of soccer economics, soccer, soccer economics, sorry, is uh, is sell a player as soon as you get an offer um, that that he's more than he that's more than he's worth, and that happens quite consistently with overhyped players like uh, not overhyped, but players that come out of international tournaments and do well, like Dimitri Payet. Yeah, I mean that is part of it. I think we we did see a system, like you say, that played completely to his strengths, and there's a couple of players that when they leave teams. Uh, maybe initially at least don't you know they need a bit of transition time first of all but then they also don't see it play to their same strengths or so so uh, obviously maybe 
Um, and, you know, there's something quite satisfying about seeing what happened with West Ham this weekend. It's sort of a mix, like you say, though, because they came up against a side who looked quite rudimentary tactically. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, the, the reason it looked so rudimentary was because maybe the players were not executing well uh, for West Ham. I didn't feel like they particularly executed what Sam Allardyce, I imagine, wanted them to do out there. Benteke, not particularly enjoying his role under Sam Allardyce, I, I wouldn't imagine, but I don't think Sam Allardyce has many other options when you look at that um, bench. I mean, you know, he could bring Remy on. Uh, you can bring which I which I, I don't understand at all. I don't I don't understand how Christian Benteke is not thriving under Sam Allardyce. Because he's not. I don't, he, I don't think he's. I don't think he wants to be that kind of player. I think he left uh, Aston Villa because he wanted to change up as a striker and wanted to become someone who uh, wasn't just sort of characterized. Floor. Yeah, it wasn't characterized in that way. Um, yeah, and I think maybe he's been at two sides that didn't want him to be that or wouldn't let him be that. Um, and that's the frustration for him is the. I guess he has to sort of fulfill both ways. And if he looked the opposite way with someone like Andy Carroll is when you, I don't know, when you play better as part of a system, then maybe in the end you get what you want, but you have to prove your initial worth. Um, and I think Benteke is struggling with that right now. I've got to admit, I feel a bit sorry for him. I feel like fans get on his back very quickly at Liverpool yeah. and at uh, Crystal Palace. Uh, but Crystal Palace need results quicker than Liverpool needed them. So we will see. Um, interestingly though, obviously Andy Carroll scored that fantastic goal. Goal of the month, Nico? Yeah, definitely. It was a fantastic overhead kick. Um, couldn't couldn't connect with it much better than he did. So yeah, I, I really like Andy Carroll. I think he's a classic English striker. Um, it was a really good goal. What's better though, Nico, a scorpion kick or an overhead kick? Uh, scorpion for sure. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But it was there's something very satisfying about seeing Carroll score that, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it, it looked it looked very. Uh, how can I put it? Um, uh, it was very graceful. And very, it's nice, very it's nice when, when the geometric angles of the universe come together and that sort of thing happens. It's almost like it was destined to happen and there are concrete lines between the pass, the cross, and his foot and the goal. Yeah, I mean, don't get carried away with it, man. But yeah, I agree. Um, <laughs> no. um, anyway, let's go to our final few results of the weekend. First of all, let's go to Watford where everyone was paying a wonderful tribute to uh, Graham and... Um, yep. It, it was it was lovely. It was it was a lovely tribute. A lot of people paying lovely tributes to a really what most people are saying was a fantastic man this weekend. Maybe not a man who got some of the results that people wanted, and maybe a man who was slightly naive in the way that he dealt with uh, certain members of the press and certain members um, of clubs. But a lovely guy overall, and someone who down the years I think is not just a footballing man but a human as well. And I think a lot of people really respected that, um, not only in his local area but within football too. And maybe someone who could have been utilised better uh, in his latter years or as, as, as an elder statesman. You know, we, we focus very heavily on tactics in England, but I think part of it is also that the human side is lacking in some ways. And that was a man who was uh, very good at getting the human side out of his teams um, and was very caring towards his players. So uh, lovely to see what... Fantastic tribute yourself there, Lawrence. That was, that was beautiful. The, I think a lot of people pay very nice tribute. If you go to the Football Ramble last week, um, I think it was in the preview for this weekend... They read out some lovely tributes and some much more touching um, stories out there. Um, and it, the sad thing is that sometimes when people die, we pay tribute to them. And it would have been lovely if he could have seen what he meant to some people uh, before he passed away. Um, but yeah, they, in the end, they got the uh, nil-nil against Middlesbrough, uh, Nico. And then uh, obviously uh, two other sides have been destined to struggle in the league this season. But both of them sort of looking mid-table at the moment. Burn- Burnley played Southampton and got the win in the end. Joey Barton coming on and breaking the deadlock just minutes after coming on as a substitute 
a slightly different type of poetic here, isn't it? Because not many people pulling the Joey Barton way, if I can say that. Definitely not. I, I was so surprised. I didn't get to catch the game, but I was really surprised when I saw who scored. And I just thought that's that's really a perfect way to to kick off your sort of reinter, reintroduction, right? He's yeah. uh, he's back at Burnley for a second spell. Um, but I think he can be a di- an addition. He's a solid central midfielder. But um, back to, sorry, just if I can highlight yeah, the, the Middlesbrough-Watford game. I think, um, you know, just to speak and, and give a little bit of praise to Aital Karanka, who I think has done an excellent job at Middlesbrough this season, despite the lack of... Of, of goals I think he's shoring up what he knows works and that's a that's a solid defense and I, I I'm excited to see what Itor can do going forward when he inevitably gets a call up to a bigger club than Middlesbrough very good point um let's go and look at a couple of the transfers that have happened so far because it's been fascinating this season a few things that have just been shored up over the last few days uh Zaza has gone uh from this is a bit of a, is a bit of a strange one. Uh, obviously, he's gone from West Ham to Juventus, but then from uh, there, he's now at Valencia. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I Zaza is someone that I really feel bad for because I think when he moved to West Ham, a lot of people were expecting him to be a striker, um, and I don't know how many people. It seems to be none. Uh, watched Zaza previous to him coming to apart, West Ham, but uh, apart from the penalty, of course, yeah, the yeah. But I don't know how many people watch him at Juventus, but he never played as a striker. He always plays as a, as a midfielder, and I mean a very high up midfielder. Um, but I don't, I don't understand the the notion that he was going to come in be a, a low number number you know number nine like Andy Carroll and and succeed. I just don't get it. Great point. Uh, elsewhere, we obviously see uh, Emnes go to Swansea from Blackburn Rovers. Uh, sorry, go back to Blackburn Rovers from Swansea. They ended the loan there. Um, and then, interestingly, obviously, we've seen Julian Draxler over the last few days sign a more permanent deal, getting the debut goal and getting the win, Nico, for PSG as they uh, stepped away from uh, Stade Ren- uh, Rene uh, with with a 1-0 win. Uh, Draxler getting that goal and proving maybe why they signed him for that star quality. I think Draxler's an interesting one. It's obviously been on the radar for... Uh, for a number of top clubs for a number of years. Um, but there's something that strikes me a little bit odd about the player. I think there's a, a bit of an arrogance or a personality issue uh, with him because he didn't necessarily shine at, with the opportunities he was given at, at smaller clubs. And I think PSG has taken um, not a gamble, but you know, there's a large aspect of, of having a Draxler in your team, someone that's marketable. Um, but I think he's a very good player and someone that can really thrive in Liga. Yeah, very, very good point. Um, I, what, what also about, do you know anything about Nicholas Sule? I do, I do not, sorry. Okay, fair enough. Uh, he, he's gone uh, 17.5 million from Hoffenheim to Bayern Munich. I can't say that I've seen a lot of him this season, which is... Probably uh, just Bayern... Buying up, up someone yeah. again. Yeah. Good point, very good point. Uh, but it, yeah, I mean, he's, he's gone now. Uh, so left Hoffenheim... Um, We'll see what happens there. Did you see uh, Merton scoring this weekend for, uh, obviously, for Napoli? You see his celebration? I did not see his celebration. celebration. I did see the goal, though, yeah. Yeah, I mean, his celebration was to run over to the camera, uh, blow, sort of, you know, like, sort of breathe uh, condensation on the lens and then draw a heart in it. Uh, just made me wonder didn't, how many... Didn't Steven Gerrard do that? Uh, well, no, he just sort of kissed the camera, didn't he? Yeah. Whereas yeah. this is actually sort of... He, he literally drew a heart on the lens 
it's that's pretty cool. Was, it, I like that. It's a little bit weird because it's as if it was set up because not I don't know that many cameras with that sort of lens. Um, I don't know anything about cameras. You know more, so I guess you you it's something that you notice, but maybe not a lot of people do. Well, I, I mean, it's very obvious the way that he does it because he goes over, breathes on a massive piece of glass, and then draws <laughs> it. Um, it's it's just sort of a weird one because you watch it and you just think. Uh, I mean, maybe it was something to do with the rain. Maybe it's something to uh, protect the the uh the camera from the rain but it's not something you see regularly um you'd imagine more players would do it if they got that opportunity maybe it's something to do with the cameras in italy that i just don't know about uh but let us know what your favorite lens related celebrations are hashtag uh lens um <laughs> patrick bamford's also gone from chelsea to uh, sorry to chelsea from burnley that loan has now ended uh, Surely he'll go out on loan again, though. I think he may be on his way to Middlesbrough. Hmm, that yeah. might be good. Yeah, like you were saying earlier. I really like back. Patrick Manford. I think he's uh, he's someone that has had a lot of tough uh, tough goes with the with the spells that he the loan spells that he's been given. Um, but I think given the proper opportunities, um, he's someone that could definitely thrive in England. Do you do you think Man City are going to be dipping into the market at all? Uh, they should. Will they? I don't know. I'm not someone that uh, you know wants like the big name, like that. You know, everybody's touting about as like the next left back or the the next right back. I think there's there's scouting is largely underutilized um, in the proper ways. I think there's a lot of undiscovered players and a lot of not necessarily uh, popular leagues that are more than capable of doing a job. Uh, we do need a we need need fullbacks. Just that should be the first order of business. Um, and then second, it's really unfortunate what's happened to Ilkay Gundogan um, because he's such a big loss to our season, uh, having to play a tour there so consistently. But um, yeah, the first thing we need is is, is, a, is another fullback. Very good point. Um, interesting. I'm going to be interested to see what happens the rest of the season with those guys. Um, any other business, Nico? Or are we allowed to leave now? I think I think we're allowed to leave now. I will say one last thing. Um, one transfer that I'm sort of excited for. I think it's, I don't want to misspeak, so I'll look it up. Um, but Luciano Narsing mm-hmm. to Southampton, right? Okay. I know. Uh, what makes you excited? I really like him as a player. He adds a lot of pace. No, Swansea, um, which is unfortunate because I think Swansea are solid um, and already nailed to go down. But um, I really do like him as a player. He's someone that uh, has had some interesting press and media comments and I, I just i just i'm excited to see him in the premier league yeah uh swansea haven't always dealt well with big personalities before baffer timby gomez of course um etc yeah. etc et but let's see i'll be interested to see what happens on that happens there um yeah anyway let's move on we're gonna see you guys later in the week obviously uh i think it'll be wednesday night we're gonna record this week also we'll see you guys thursday nico it's been fantastic to have you on if people want to go and a hear your podcast where can they find it um, they can search ULF on the iTunes podcast app um, and just subscribe to ULF and any episode labeled The Weekly Rondo is mine. But you can listen to the other uh, podcasts on there. Probably don't do that. Just listen to mine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, point. Do that. yeah, the other one's a dog. Um, <laughs> Nico is somewhat of the Paul Pogba signing for the ULF podcast. Oh, um, God, don't compare me to Paul Pogba, please. You deserve your own uh, your own emoji. <laughs> Nico. Do I? Do you feel Do a little I? bit sorry for Pogba with that whole emoji stuff? I mean, I feel a little bit sorry for him that he's sort of got... Do you feel sorry for him? Yeah. I feel like, like it... he 
love. He was sitting there in in the in the meeting, just give me my own emoji, please. This is what I want. Yeah, but I mean, you know, he doesn't. He's not going to get you know, massive say over those sort of things. Sometimes you get a bit swept along or kind of, you know, I mean, if he's, if he's trying to make money while he's doing it, I don't, I don't think he's at home designing his own emoji. I think he just looks at it and goes, okay, cool. But he is at home designing that horrible haircut. I don't, I'm not even sure he designs that. I, and I love the way that PP is uh, buzzed in the side of his head. It's great. PP. Yeah. PP. Put Pogba. Um, all right. Fair enough. I, I like him. I think if it, I don't think it. Do you like Paul Pogba? Yeah, seems like a I'm, great guy. I'm not. A, I mean, I, I'm not saying he's a horrible person. I just think there's so much. Like, I just prefer a quiet player. Maybe someone that doesn't necessarily is more humble, and he's just with the Adidas adverts and all that stuff. It just kind of rubs me the wrong way. Maybe it's because he's a Manchester United player. But uh, sorry, I've got any other business. Something we didn't really cover was Joel Matip. Uh, for Liverpool. Currently some sort of furore going on around uh, whether he's retired from international football or not. Some of the people tweeting about other players and Daniel Storey from uh, Football 365 tweeting about Kevin Prince Boateng played in 2010 and 2014, but then uh, was retired during 2012 and 2013 African Cup of Nations. Um, Basically, I don't quite get what's going on, Nika. I mean, I understand if a, if a player retires and says he doesn't want to play for your team, why would you want to call him up? Uh, Joel Matip's an excellent player, and, and I think any any team in the AFCON, who there's a, there are a myriad of brilliant teams, but would, would be happy to have him. But I think um, when it comes to the AFCON, I think they're, they're at a bit, a bit of a disadvantage um, because it is obviously in the, in the middle of the domestic season. Uh, for a lot of the leagues, and I think it takes away from. Um, I saw a notification this morning that Messi and Ronaldo and a couple other players were able to catch up or close the gap between uh, themselves and, and Pierre Emerick Aubameyang in terms of the Golden Boot competition this season. That does him no favors because it's obviously something that he wants to win, but he has less time to do it with. And it doesn't necessarily do African players uh, a whole lot of favors, but obviously you have national pride and you want to play for your country, but sometimes they're forced to make that decision between club and country, and that's unfortunate for them, whereas European or South American or other players of different nationalities have the summer to, to make those decisions. That is actually a really good point, yeah. Um Mm. But the AFCON is great. I love the African combinations. I think not enough people watch it. Um, there's some really good teams there. And African football has a has a mystique about it that I really like and, and an aura that I really like to uh, to be a part of. Mm. Yeah, you know what? It, does, it is the kind of tournament I would love to go to. Um, yeah. It just seems very different to any other tournament. And that, that let's mean, go, that Lawrence. You and I. You and I. Let's do a video. You know what? I would love to go. Um, get, in, get in contact if you live in Africa. Uh, hashtag I live in Africa um, or hashtag I'm from Africa. I want to know how many people listen to this podcast from Africa. And I mean the, the continent. The I'm not treating it as, a, yeah, the whole continent. What's your problem with that? Isn't, oh, wait, said, wait a minute. Isn't I Africa a country? In Africa. <laughs> Africa's a country, right? It's a singular, it's a singular nation. The whole thing. Yeah. The whole, whole thing. I mean, it's not actually that big, is it? It's pretty damn big. Lawrence. No, it's got, man. Africa's, Africa's like the size of uh, Hull. Hull? Yeah. yeah. The country is extremely... I was so dumbfounded. Everything's two hours away. I had to drive eight hours just to get to a mountain from where I live. But, you know. That's a very good point, actually. Yeah. Um, before you start tweeting in, I know how big Africa is. Okay. It's big. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, uh, hashtag I'm from Africa. I just want to just wanna know. 
and we'll see you guys again real soon on TF3. Head over and um, just give a little look at our Pochettino documentary on TFR. We'd love uh, to see you guys over there. And if you've got anything else that you think we should watch or we should be seeing, just tell me. Reach out on Twitter at The Front. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Three. See you guys later in the week. Bye bye. Oh.